Hello, Liturgy Guide listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have a bonus episode for you today. This is like an appetizer episode because we're going to start the main course of Season 5 next Friday. So make sure you email us your questions at questions at liturgyguys.com. But today we want to introduce you to a good friend of ours, Dr. Andrew Swafford, who teaches at Benedictine College. And he wrote this new book, and the topic is amazing. We cannot wait for you to hear this this great conversation. Chris is not on this episode. This is a conversation between Dr. Swafford, uh, Dennis, and myself. And we will start Season 5 next Friday. So listen to this bonus episode, and we will be back next week to launch Season 5. So without further ado, a bonus episode of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Hey, Dennis. Yeah. Well, that's like we have a guest today for this bonus episode of the liturgy, guys. I know we haven't had a bonus episode in a long time. So, before what a bonus this is, before we let this person talk, I think we should do like a 30 minute catch up session. Yeah, it's been a while. I've been great. How are you? I like you. picture of you and Agnes at the golf course. Oh, thank you. That was really great. Hey, your garden is still in our backyard of our office. So no, my problem. Your garden, no. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. We have a special guest. Enough yeah. of that. And it's so funny. Like, we're podcasting on computer, and he's on the same campus with me here. He the is. One, the only, Dr. Andrew Swafford. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are too far. Did I ever tell you how I met Dr. Swafford's story? No, but I want to hear it. I was at Marytown, which is a little chapel next to Mundelein Seminary, and it was Sunday Mass, and it was really crowded. I think they had a busload of visitors or something. And there's this gigantic guy next to me, and I don't mean gigantic like, you know, eating Twinkies gigantic. Like like Jesse Weiler gigantic. Football muscly dude, wearing a suit, eyes closed, all squinted, hands are up in the air, super intense. And I'm like, I need to meet that guy. And I don't usually just decide to meet people at Mass, after Mass, but I was like, I got to go out and look for him. And uh, I thought... Then I didn't find him for a long time. And then I saw a picture of him and I was like, who is that guy? And now deceased friend Jared said, oh, that's my college roommate, Andy Swafford. Now here we are, college colleagues, Benedictine College <laughs> in Atchison, Kansas. And I'm sure you're, you're there, right, Dr. Swafford? And, uh, and I you. am. And my life was never the same for having yeah, crossed paths with Dennis Swaff- McNamara. I know. But, but also you were on our campus for your STL, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I did my SDL and my STD at uh, Mundelein. That's exactly right. That's how that's how DMAC and I uh, cross paths. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there you go. Many connections between Benedictine College and Mundelein Seminary campus. So it's kind of good to have you here. I'm also godfather of one of his kids and uh, almost lived next door to them, but it didn't work out. I'm a god <laughs> uncle to one of his kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't know that, and nobody's ever told me that. But I just I just called it right now. It um, is indeed true. We love you, Jesse. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Birthday presents he's been getting. 
And little five-year-old Colby loved every minute he had with Jesse. Oh, yeah. It was great. What? Colby's my grandkid. God, I'm not sharing him with Jesse. All right, Andy, I got an email from somebody who says they know you and says that you want to talk about something. Um, I just said yes before I actually did any research to what you want to talk to us about. But apparently you did something and you want to tell us about the thing. You done wrote a book. You wrote a book. Oh, Um, that's fantastic. St. Paul's. Epistle to the Hebrews. What's it called, <laughs> dude? <laughs> well, yeah. So it's it's a uh, letter to the Hebrews, the uh, New and Eternal Covenant. Uh, what was so it's it's a book uh, and a uh, there's eight video sessions you can get on DVD or digitally. But w- one thing you know that kind of hit me is I wrote the book before COVID hit, but I prepared the presentations after COVID hit, and we filmed those at the end of May. And it really kind of hit me that there's a, a maybe a timeliness here because we've been you know watching masses live stream for a while and doing our Bible studies and, you know, which is all wonderful. I mean, it, you, you, you know, you do what you can, but like the road to Emmaus, you know, the, the study of the sacred page moves from the text to Jesus present in the blessed sacrament. All right. What does really that, kind of that have to do with liturgy? Come well, on. when I was preparing the presentations though, I really kind of sensed, uh, I, I, my prayer is that Hebrews, and it's really, this is what Hebrews is all about. That the new covenant is not a text or a document. It's a living liturgical reality. And that it'll galvanize people to get back to the Eucharist as the center of life in the new covenant. That as great as Bible study is, as great as maybe watching a, a mass on, on online is, it, it can never replace the encounter with our Lord in the liturgy. Okay. So, you know, people have been writing about Hebrews for a long time. What would you say is uh, your particular contribution to the discussion through your work here? Yeah, I mean, so we, we, we've long said, I mean, uh, with uh, Vatican II and De Veribum and, uh, you know, Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, that the liturgy is the natural habitat for the sacred scripture, for the sacred page. And Hebrews, in a, in a kind of a fabulous way, illustrates that. So it, it, this is thought to be an ancient homily, an ancient homily. So we speak of it as the letter, but there's no letter type introduction. There's no like Paul yeah. to the church at Corinth. There's no intro that names the author and the recipients. There's and several it's not references. that long either, right? Compared no, to it's, some- not, it's not that long at all. And, and there's several references to speaking throughout. If you look at Hebrews 2, 5, the, the world to come of which we are speaking. And then thirdly, mm-hmm. in Hebrews 13, 22, it's, it calls itself, the document calls itself a quote, word of exhortation, which is a description of a homily. And you can find the exact same phrase in Acts 13.15, describing Paul's first sermon, his homily at Pisidian Antioch. So once you get that and let that sink in, that uh, this is a liturgical homily that was written down and disseminated. This was given in the context of the Eucharistic liturgy. Then the liturgical meaning of the text just jumps off the page. Yes, you could imagine him trying to explain to a bunch of Jews or former Jews or recently Jews, this is how Christ fulfills all the stuff your fathers taught you. Right. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is, I mean, this is, uh, as I was preparing for it and dive into it, it, it really kind of had this, this, this is like the Holy of Holies of biblical theology. Cause you really see the whole, the old and the new come together, the movement from the earthly to the heavenly. Um, and very much that's what it's about that, that, um, a, an exhortation to persevere in faith and embrace the heavenly reality of the new covenant, the heavenly temple and the risen lamb. And so you have all the, if you just go back to like Mount Sinai at the tabernacle and, and Moses is told to make the tabernacle according to the pattern, the tavneeth that is being shown him. And, th- and that right. gives rise to a lively, deep Jewish sense that in, and DMAC, you've written about this, and this is a lot of people have written about this, that the sanctuaries of ancient Israel, the tabernacle, the temple, were thought to be modeled off of a heavenly counterpart. Right. So the tabernacle, uh, just for anyone who doesn't know, is a kind of a big portable tent that was like a little church in a sense. There was a small room in the back and the bigger room in the front, but you could pick it up and 
Very complicated though, right? All kinds of fabrics and clasps of gold and lot, I mean, minute descriptions on how this would all be. Uh, totally, totally minute. And, and But it was, so on the one hand, the Israelites weren't stupid. They, they knew that God was everywhere. He's the creator. He's everywhere where his power is. But in a unique and singular majestic sense, he he gave the gift of himself to, to be present in kind of a singular quasi-spatial way in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple. Um, and there was a sense that the earthly liturgies of ancient Israel were thought to be an imitation of the heavenly liturgy. But what's different in the new, what's different with Jesus is that he has reconciled heaven and earth. And so now we not only imitate, we participate in the heavenly liturgy. And so in Hebrews... Worship well, has been efficacious in, the, in any sense, or was it just practice? Well, in a certain sense, but not in a full sense, right? So I, I don't think you could just reduce it to just kind of ritual uh, praxis. But it was a temporary means to deal with sin, to commune with God and for God. I mean, the tabernacle, on the one hand, is a great gift to the Israelites. I mean, this is God. This is the Sinai experience, his presence on Sinai going with his people. On the other hand, um, part of the dynamic, especially after the golden calf, which happens in Exodus 32, is that there's a subtle withdrawal of God's presence, uh, partly because of the sin of the people. And again, Israel's story always embodies humanity's story. So it's, it's, it's sin that puts a gap, a chasm between us and God. Um, and so take about, think about the Holy of Holies, you, you know, the, the veil that um, there's a veil that you entered, you know, as you went into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go in and only once a year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Um, that veil, that parochith in Hebrew is what tears when Jesus dies on the cross. And that tearing really points in two directions. One, the imminent demise of the temple, that the, the earthly temple will give way uh, to the new and heavenly temple of the risen body of Jesus. But also, uh, not only is that temple going to be destroyed negatively, but positively, God's presence will be unleashed. And think about it right now. And, and you know, have you ever seen a gold box with a veil on it? Have you ever seen three, you know, an, an altar with three candles on each side? Think about the, the ancient menorah. Um, now, anywhere. Anybody can go in to a Catholic church and go before our Lord, the blessed sacrament. What the high priest uh, prefigured in the Holy of Holies there, we have access to all the time. And, and that's probably, if I could just maybe read one passage in Hebrews, um, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. And this whole section of Hebrews is moving from the earthly worship of the ancient Israelites to the new and heavenly liturgy of the new covenant. Um, it says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, that's parisi is the Greek word there. It's a filial boldness to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he opened for us through the curtain, right? That's that curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies that only the high priest go in only once a year. What's that curtain? That is through his flesh. That's a Eucharistic image. And, and as you keep going down through this passage, there's a reference to being sprinkled with clean water. That's Ezekiel 36, uh, our confession of faith, a homologia. That's a creedal profession. Um, and, and so you get this sense that the Eucharist is the veil through which we enter the heavenly holy of holies. And that's why the mass, the Eucharist really is heaven on earth. I have, a, I have a question about um, access to this, because in, in uh, like you were talking about the Day of Atonement, we had, uh, there were so many restrictions. Only one person could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Super restrictive. We went from all of these rules and regulations and restrictions to just full open access. What 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 is that like? And is it full open access or are we supposed to do something to be able to partake in this still? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think one thing you're partly getting at is, is we like to talk about Jesus as, as our, our, our friend, our brother. But I, I like to look at the opening chapter of Revelation, chapter 1, I think it's verse 17. You know, here's, here's traditionally John sees Jesus and he falls down as though dead. Just awestruck at the holiness of Jesus, the holiness of our divine Lord. And I think we need to recover. Uh, it's sort of like if you think back to Narnia, C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, when they talk the, the Lion, Wish, and the Wardrobe, and they're talking to Mr. Beaver, and they hear about Aslan, and like, oh, he's good, but he's not safe. And this, this, you can hear Lewis kind of juxtaposing this. And this, God is our Father; He loves us absolutely. There's no question about it. But we have to recover, especially in our culture, a sense of the sacred, the holiness, the transcendence of God. And so, I think what you're getting at is, is, is um, the the old to the new for a Catholic has always been a sense of of continuity and discontinuity. But it's a matter of prefiguration, of foreshadowing, of going from the earthly to the heavenly. It's not a matter of radical rupture. And so the sense in which uh, holiness was a concern that God wanted to teach his people then, that didn't go away for us. That didn't go away at all. And you look at, I mean, you can look at passage in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, about how serious Paul takes the reception of our blessed Lord in the Eucharist. So, um, you know, the, the Eucharist is Jesus' real presence. It's a sacrifice. It's, it's the means of communion and efficacious means of communion. Uh, we ought not to take that lightly, right? So, um, we need to, I like to say, you know, God is a father. He loves us just the way we are, but too much to leave us that way. Um, whereas I think we think of our Lord sometimes as an ATM machine or maybe a kind of a, a disordered grand, grandfather. A grace um, TM machine? <laughs> hey. yeah. So, I, I, Jesse, do you tell me if that's where you're thinking? But I, I, I absolutely, we should prepare ourselves. If, if we're going to think about someone you might go, a friend you might go visit, um, don't you prepare especially someone you haven't seen for a while, you don't steal a time. I mean, like you prepare your heart, prepare your mind. I wonder how they're doing. You're praying for them. You're thinking about what you want to ask them. I mean, how often do we fail to prepare to really enter into the sacrifice of the mass and, and, and become living sacrifices in our Lord, as St. Paul tells us? Uh, that's what it's about. So no question about it. Absolutely. Not in a, a fearful way, but in a, a recovery of the sense of the holy. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to put my mind in the mind of, um, an Israelite at this time, you know, you know, here I did all this stuff. I followed all the rules. I did all the things that I was supposed to do. And and now you're telling me that literally anybody has access to this and that this veil is totally gone now and it's totally open. Um, I'm just trying to think of like how I would process that uh, as a Jewish person at the, a Jewish person at the time. Well, go, go back to Mount Sinai, right? So on Sinai, it's uh, Exodus 24, say verse 8, you have this phrase, the blood of the covenant. So you, you have the, the words of the covenant are read, and then you have the sacrifice and the blood of the covenant, um, it, which, by the way, in Hebrews 9.20 draws from that passage, but it says this is the blood of the covenant. And it does that intentionally to draw in both the Sinai and the Last Supper together. But the, what I wanted to point out, though, is that it, it doesn't stop with the sacrifice. It moves up to a communion meal and Exodus 24, verse 11, they go up Mount Sinai. This is Moses and Nadab, Bihu, and 70 of the elders, and they have this, this meal in the very presence of God. And that gives rise to a deep Jewish sense of, uh, in the Messianic age, there'd be this Messianic banquet. There'd be this, this is sort of like a prefiguration. You, you can see this like in Isaiah 25, for example, that this Messianic banquet would, would have an abundance of wine. It'd be for all peoples. It would overcome death and sin together. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is it's not as much as a rupture as people think. There really actually is an organic movement from the old to the new, especially when you look at the prophetic developments of these things, that if you go from temple and veil and priesthood and sacrifice to nothing, like, and again, I love my Protestant brothers and sisters, but as, as they tend 
tend to think about it, then it, frankly, I think it makes much less sense. But if you see the liturgical fulfillment of these realities, that at the Last Supper, it, it you know, this is something I develop in my book. Um, Jesus' actions in the temple, for example, when he flipped over the tables, and um, there's a lot going on there, and it's more than just about economics. It really is a prophetic, symbolic action about the the end of the temple. Um, but you really need to pair that, and even Jewish scholars have seen this, like Jacob Neusner, that that needs to be paired positively with the Last Supper. That it's sort of a judgment against the earthly temple. The daily tamid, the daily offering, is going to give way to a new tamid, a new daily offering, a new sacrifice in the Eucharist. So I think when you see the liturgical fulfillment, priesthood, priesthood, sacrifice, sacrifice, temple, temple, you're moving from the earthly to the heavenly, you can see that it's actually far more organic than I think we tend to think of it. And Hebrews just nails this. So if we go back to the way that Jews worshiped in the temple, right? There's a, a calendar, liturgical calendar, right? There are feasts at different times of year. There are different kinds of offerings. There's grain, there's wine, there's animals. There's different kinds of priestly activity. There's singers who are designated to be singers. There's the high priest who's sort of the head of the priests who goes into the Holy of Holies once a year, giving stuff to God to be transformed, giving Israel to God to be transformed. There's a lot of mediating going on, right? Sort of like, oh, here we are. We're going to take your stuff and give it to God. And then God's going to give you back these blessings through bread and the bread of presence or in wine or blood or whatever it happens to be. Uh, so there's this whole liturgical life that's very complicated. Prayers of dedication of the temple to talk about Solomon or you know, David dealing with stuff like that. Is it kind of simplistic to think, oh, well, Jesus came and suddenly we just had a nice meal around the dining room table in a house? <laughs> I would say. I mean, it's a question that say, answers itself, but I want to hear you talk about it. Yeah, I mean, even I think, I mean, I do a lot in my, my classes, especially my Old Testament classes uh, with students to kind of rehabilitate the Old Testament and rehabilitate what the Jews were hoping for. I think too often we're like, wow, they just wanted a military Messiah. And they just wanted an earthly kingdom. And and of course you can find some Jews that were thinking that, but if you, you can't open up the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can't open up the prophets and not see, they were hoping for a new creation, a new temple, uh, a, 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 a new priesthood, a messianic. I mean, there's, there's a, it's a lot more of a heavenly hope than we give them credit for. And, and even the sacrifices, um, you have some that, express communion with God and some that restore communion with God. So you've got the, the, the grain offering, like you said, and the whole burnt offering and the, the, the peace offering, the shalamim. Um, and then you've got the, the guilt offering, the sin offering. And what you'll notice is actually after the golden calf is when the sin offering and the guilt offering pick up. Right, you have sacrifices before that, but they actually fall in those first three camps: the the olah, the mincha, and the shalamim, uh, the whole burnt offering, which is it really sacrificed at a deep level is a ritualized self offering, a ritualized self offering, and it's why Jesus gives the perfect offering because he offers his very self. He is both priest and victim. But if you look at the cross, and I like the Catechism six fifty four on this, there's two aspects of the Paschal mystery. There's the atoning aspect that deals with sin, but then there's also the infusion of divine life. You think about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and you can already see that in, in a smaller way uh, in the sacrifices of ancient Israel. So there's some that atone for sin, that restore communion after it's been broken. But there's some that express communion, uh, that express that shared life between our Lord, between Yahweh and his people. And that's what's, that's what's even the, you know, we say new covenant or new testament. Testament is the Latinization of the word covenant. Uh, the new covenant is not just a document. It's, it's a living liturgical Eucharistic reality. So if you were a parent and you said to your son, I promise you, 
I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. Even if you walk away from me and curse me, I will always welcome you back because I love you and I'll share myself with you. That's kind of a covenant, right? It's not just a legal document that says, well, until you're 18, I have to support you. Yeah, no, and at a deep level, it's a, it's a familial, uh, familial family bond. I mean, to take, go back to Abraham and Isaac. Go back to Abraham and Isaac, where you have this near offering of Isaac, this is the Akedah in ancient Hebrew, which is the Hebrew word for to bind in Genesis 22, verse 8 or 9. Um, what, and, and at the end of that text, in 22, verse 16, verse 18, God swears by himself. He swears by himself this divine oath that he will make this worldwide blessing come about. And really what he's given is kind of a built-in mechanism that even when Israel fails, salvation history will progress because of my faithfulness. And so when you look at like the golden calf, Moses alludes right to that divine oath and God says, bingo, you got it right. So, so in other words, just as you say, uh, you're exactly right, but it's almost as if God has pre-enacted the extent to which he's willing to go for the salvation of the world. And so what he does in, what he does in Christ and was what Abraham and Isaac do, they prefigure what God, the father and God, the son are going to do for the salvation of the world. And the deep lesson is, um, Part of the deep lesson of the Old Testament is the Old Testament knows the reality of sin inside and out. We need a savior. We are broken. And grace not only heals, it restores, it perfects, it elevates our fallen nature. So we, the, the atoning part of sin, uh, the need to, for sin to be atoned for, that's real. It just doesn't stop there. That's just not the end of the story. So salvation is far more than just forgiveness. It's divinization. It's being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8.29. So, the, 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 you know, of course, the epistle starts with, superiority of the new dispensation over the old, right? Obviously that's the big message. The old dispensation was, you know, do these things and stay in right relationship with me. Now all of a sudden this one is like crisis, the fulfillment of all of this, right? Yeah. I mean, I, he's reconciled heaven and earth. That's what the catechism puts it. If I could just read one more passage to you, Hebrews 12, 22, he contrasts Sinai and Zion. And by 22, you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Note the present tense. He's not saying, I, I hope someday the heavenly Jerusalem will be among us. It's you have come right now, gathered around in worship of the risen lamb in the Eucharist to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn that goes on into spirits of just men made perfect. You mean the heavenly Jerusalem has dawned, you bet. You mean angels are here, you bet. You mean the saints who have died and gone before us are here, you bet. And Hebrews is, is nailing this. In fact, um, you know, when I was in Chicago there before I went to Mundelein, I actually did a master's degree in Old Testament Semitic languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School down the road. And I had a friend who said, you know, I think you Catholics might be right about the communion of saints. We were in Aramaic together. And I, and I said, talk to me. And he said, that passage right there, where it speaks of the spirits of just men made perfect. And it's referring back to Hebrews eleven forty. So in chapter 11, it talks about this kind of Old Testament Hall of Fame. It says, uh, since God had foreseen something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And it speaks about these, these martyrs of the Old Testament. And then here in the new covenant, heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, angels, and spirits of just men made perfect, are gathered together because death does not sever our union. Uh, so the, I mean, I think Hebrews more than anything just shows us that the new covenant has really brought heaven to earth. We enter, we share in a heavenly reality right now, most especially through the Eucharist. Right. And this is our liturgy guys, constant sacramental claim, right? That the liturgy is not just human beings getting together and doing their duty to God or else God's going to be mad at us. Right. It's this assembling as Christ, acting in this enigmatic way, right? making real what is remembered. And as a mystical body, the many members come together and they act as Christ with the priest as their head. And this is the real thing. You know, it's the fulfillment of everything that's promised, but it's 
the real participation in what's in our in our future. And I think I don't know, you know, that comes from a lot of places, but Hebrews certainly would be one of the great justifications for that kind of thinking. Where do you come down, by the way, Doc Swaff, on authorship of Hebrews? Hmm. Yeah, so what, what I mean, I in, so you the early church was divided, right? So the East uh, favored Pauline authorship, and, and there were people in the West that had questions about it. Um, the uh, there's a passage in Eusebius citing Origen that, that says, "Who wrote Hebrews? God only knows." That that passage actually, and there's there's there's, there's some good papers recently on that, is probably been misrepresented because what what he says, if you read just above that passage, is that basically um, he he says, you know, some churches think it's Paul. And he basically says they are right in thinking that because the thought is Paul, but what Origen notices is that the, stylistically it's very different. And so, who actually put you know penned a papyrus? Only God knows. Um, so there's certain pass, pass, uh, phrases that occur everywhere in Paul, like in Christ and Christ Jesus, that don't show up in Hebrews. So it's it's clear that there's something different here in Hebrews. Um, that said, there are conceptual similarities, like the inadequacy of the law, Christ's redemptive obedience, and so. Um, I, I, I suggest in the book that it's we're within a Pauline orbit of thought. The author mentions Timothy at the end of it. Um, Cardinal Van Waugh has a fascinating theory that uh, he thinks Barnabas wrote it, but he thinks the end of it is from Paul vouching for the contents of this homily. So some people think Barnabas, some people think Apollos, some people think Luke. Um, it's probably best thought of as someone within the circle of Paul. Uh, it, all of the New Testament um, is apostolic in the sense it's either written by an apostle or an associate of the apostles. So like Mark, associate of Peter, Luke is a companion of Paul. Uh, so it's, it's apostolic in that sense, but we really don't know for sure. And even the other church was divided. Uh, some people like uh, Clement of Alexandria and Aquinas follows him on this, think that that uh, Paul wrote it in Hebrew, the language of Hebrew, and then Luke translated it. That that probably isn't going to work because the Greek is just so exquisite. There's word plays in the Greek. Uh, there's a uh, one in Hebrews five eight where it, which speaks about Christ learning from what he suffered. It's uh, emethen, epithen. I mean, it's just a beautiful word play. That kind of thing is hard to pull off in a translation. This is this this text was written in Greek originally. Um, you, frankly, to be totally honest with you, the what we yeah, know about to totally authorship, authorship is best just gleaned from the text. This person is 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 versed in the Old Testament, has exquisite Greek, and is poised to really understand the movement from the old to the new. Paul fits that bill, but we can't say it's Paul for sure. It doesn't matter really at the end of the day if it's Paul or just full of all kinds of true things that Paul knew. Yeah, no, no, I don't think it matters at all. And I, 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 I but I, I do think um, you know, the. Like I said, it's not that as if uh, nobody thought it had a connection to Paul. And again, Origen seems to think it had some connection to Paul, but that Paul didn't actually pen the final document. That's fair enough. Um, the document does have all the appearances of being pretty early. Uh, it speaks of sacrifice in the temple is still ongoing. It, it has really the earmarks of uh, being written before the temple fell. So I do think that's a powerful witness to this. I mean, here's the first one or two generations of Christians expressing this clear Eucharistic fulfillment mm -hmm. of salvation history. I heard that you wrote this book in Greek and then had it translated. <laughs> By Jesse Wiley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you, you imagine? English, it's just the wordplay in Greek. So much <laughs> you just, you made really me should, look good. <laughs> you really should read it in Greek. English is just okay. Um, so tell me a little bit about this, um, how this is coupled with this program. So you read the book and then you're, you're invited additionally to, to watch these videos. How does this work? So uh, the the uh, 
it's laid out in eight sessions. So there's a book. Uh, so I, ideally, again, we've, we've got study groups that do this, or some people do it as, as married couples, or some people just do it individually. And I, I, uh, I'm actually signing the book in my prophets class. Um, I like to end my prophets class with a treatment of Hebrews and Revelation, because once you've really started the prophets, you can see these texts in, in a kind of a richer, thicker light. Uh, but yeah, ideally, you would, you would read the text of the book. Uh, for that session. So like once a week that you would do this and it, it kind of gives you the context, gives you the lay of the land, what to look for. It has study questions about the content, but also uh, liturgical applications and spiritual life, you know, moral applications, things like that. Um, and then you'd read the text of Hebrews. Then you'd meet, um, you'd discuss the study questions, and then you'd watch as a 30 minute video uh, at the end of that, they kind of bring it all together. And, and typically it's designed to kind of be like an hour and a half uh, say so sometimes the groups will meet once a week eight times uh, for an hour and a half each and then do that or as I said people do it on their own as well um, the video sessions are available digitally I think for only ten dollars and then there's also a DVD format that's a little bit more expensive um, but uh, yeah hopefully we can you know COVID, the digital thing I think is going to help with COVID because people can't always get together physically uh, but it's it's designed to kind of inform to teach to inspire to challenge uh, so it, there's a didactic you know academic component but it's not just just about that. It's about entering into the fullness of scripture and having our lives transformed to the image of Christ. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Who is the intended audience? It's not really for pointy-headed professor types. It's more for Catholics who want to deepen their faith. Is that the intended audience? No, I, I think so. I mean, I think that's exactly, it, it's definitely for the average lay, lay Catholic. I, I do think, like I said, I'm going to use it in my prophets class. Uh, I've had friends, uh, that, that, you know, academics that have read it that aren't versed in Hebrews and like, wow, man, I couldn't believe how much was here. Partly because I think Hebrews brings together the entire Bible. Uh, so I, I think there's something for everybody, but yeah, the audience is definitely geared toward uh, just, uh, you know, lay people who want to go deeper in scripture. And I think Hebrews is especially equipped to unite scripture and the liturgy together. Were there any surprises? You know, you think you know something to your research to write a book or something. Any surprises you had when you were doing the research, like moments of bursts of light over your head or new insights? You know, I began the book by describing Hebrews as sort of like entering into the Holy of Holies of biblical theology. And, and I've always loved Hebrews. It's always been one of my favorite books, but I, I didn't anticipate myself saying that. And, and it like when you really enter deeply into it, um, the author has such a command of the entire movement of the biblical story. So uh, I don't know if I can point to something specific, but but the, well, you know, the the I didn't know before I really entered into the research how widespread uh, just the understanding that this is a homily. This is an ancient homily. That's not like a sideline. I mean, that's like, this is the most obvious explanation of the text that we have is this was first a homily. And, and, and to really can let that sink in and, and let that illumine the interpretation. Imagine these things, not just like written, and I'm not just studying a private document. This was delivered in the context of the Eucharistic liturgy. That I really, I mean, I felt like that just made the liturgical meaning jump off the page. Yeah. And you know what that does for me too, is it makes me realize a homily is somebody knows something really, really valuable and they're super excited to tell you about it. Right. So they're like, Hey, guess what? I have the message for you to receive. And it's not so much, here's this text you should study like a scientific document. Right. And it's nice to read the whole scripture that way. It's like, wow, here's knowledge God has given me and I have to share it with you. I, Amen. That's what makes it, I mean, even as an academic, that's what makes it exhilarating. I mean, I love the reading Greek and Hebrew and things like that, but I, I love it the best when I can do that with an eye toward the liturgical consummation of what Christ has done for me. Mm -hmm. All right. 
Andy, if people want to get this book or watch the videos, where where do they go? Yeah, so ascensionpress.com backslash Hebrews. Ascensionpress.com backslash Hebrews. That's awesome. I'm very much looking forward to this. We've been doing a little bit of uh, online courses as well, and we found a lot of success on our end as well. So it's really it's really good to you know put out this academic content. But then, like you said, with COVID, especially people at home, uh, having access to these, you know, extended features of these programs as well. So very much looking forward to this. Uh, any embarrassing stories about Dennis that you want to share with me? Because <laughs> I'm running out of people who also know him that are near me. Ooh, uh, embarrassing stories about Dennis. Um, One time ah. he randomly approached you while you were in adoration. <laughs> and you were like, what the heck? Me after no, I, you know, I don't know if I've got an embarrassing story. We've got, we, we go way, way, way back. And there's a, there's a real funny one where he caught my daughter, Kate, when she was about four, she was, I mean, just expressive at a young age, more so than I think the other, the boys were, my older boys were at that age. And he just kind of whips out his phone and she's talking about the size of this fish that uh, somebody caught and, and he just kind of, you know, uh, captured that forever. So uh, we, we appreciate our DMAC, that's for sure. And actually, I have that right here, if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of it because it was so funny she was just a little kid and she was so excited about talking about this fish it's like oh of course my phone is not playing it now but how old is how old is kate now she's nine nine yeah no i know hey she was younger than colby i think or maybe colby's age when when you took that video 2016 i'm looking at it now you should take a picture of you holding her like you would hold a fish off the cloud <laughs> Anyway, I, I missed the moment, but it was very fun. Maybe we'll put that on the uh, there you go guest notes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Swafford, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we wish you the best with your school year this year. Wish you best with the pr continued promotion of this uh, book. We'll very much uh, endorse what you're talking about here. It's very much on par with the Liturgical Institute and the Liturgy Guys. Dennis, anything else? Anything nice you want to say? Don't be a stranger, Andy. You're just just up the hill. They never see you. <laughs> yeah, well, no, for, for real. And hey, can I just you know, thanks for having me on, and thank you for all that you're doing. I I really, uh, you know, I, I our Lord is our Lord, and and He is victorious. Uh, but I, I am prayerfully concerned that that people will get used to not going to mass and, and, and maybe get used to their life away from the liturgy. So I, I'm thankful for your apostle, your ministry. I pray that the Hebrew study does this as well. They just kind of relight the fire uh, that Jesus is present in our midst because when he returns again in glory, he won't have an ounce more glory than he does right now, the blessed sacrament. The only difference will be in our ability to see. Giant fishes. Big, big ass gopher. Okay. That's my 4-year-old daughter. That's quite an exclamation point right there. Well, Andy, what, what you just said just struck a chord with me because, you know, we used to have at my parish, we used to have uh, two, two masses on Sunday and then the Saturday vigil. And now you have to sign up and only 150 people can go to mass. And I am I can easily at like 11 p.m. on Saturday, still register for that mass. And so you have people who are like, well, I want my nine o'clock mass or my 10 o'clock mass back, but we're not even filling, we're not even filling up what, uh, what the restrictions should be. And so uh, some of that is, you know, the, 
the infirm or the elderly are not wanting right. to come back. But I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we hear we keep hearing that the church is going to get smaller and stronger, but this might be the catalyst to really launch into that. And so, so we need books like yours and programs like ours to to continue to to preach the renewal because when we come back, we want to come back stronger and better. Amen. <laughs> hey, that's what you get when you're on the Liturgy Guys podcast. Amen, brother. You get sound bites and puns and jokes and occasionally some we serious. We need to go back to church and we need two giant fishes. Because you know what? Christ will feed thousands with Yeah, we should need five loaves and Kate's yeah. fish. There yep. we go. There you go. All right. God bless. God bless. Take care, you guys. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.